This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 3rd. Today, what Joe Biden's son was doing in Ukraine, an unconventional solution for rural churches, and the burden of forgiveness for Black Americans. Hunter Biden had been a lobbyist for clients with interest for Congress when his father was the U.S. senator. He had been a vice president at a bank that was a major contributor to his father. He was a board member of a company backed by Chinese entities when his father was doing policy with Beijing. My name is Michael Kranish. I'm a political investigative reporter at The Washington Post. And then he joined the board of this company in Ukraine, Burisma, at a time when his father was talking about gas policy in Ukraine. So there's just a number of factors and incidents where Hunter Biden is doing business when his father's interests might also be raised. In a phone call in July, President Trump asked Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to look into just that. He wanted to know whether Joe Biden had asked Ukrainian officials to end an investigation that may have involved his son, Hunter. That call was the subject of a whistleblower complaint that became public last month. And it's at the center of an impeachment inquiry into the president. Press reports began to break of a phone call by the president of the United States calling upon a foreign power to intervene in his election. This is a breach of his constitutional responsibilities. On Thursday, Trump doubled down on his accusations against the Bidens. So I would say that President Zelensky... If it were me, I would recommend that they start an investigation into the Bidens because nobody has any doubt that they weren't crooked. That was a crooked deal, 100 percent. So in 2014, when Hunter Biden is saying that he's going to join the board of Burisma, did Joe Biden say anything about that? Do we have any knowledge that he talked to Hunter Biden or that he tried to dissuade him from taking up this job? Well, both Bidens at some point had said they didn't talk to each other about this. However, Hunter Biden told The New Yorker magazine earlier this year that his father said to him that, I hope you know what you're doing. And Hunter Biden responded, I do. And they say that's all there was, that there was no further conversation. There are plenty of folks out there who say, wait, there should have been some conversation. Joe Biden, knowing his son had joined this company, he says he found out about it, according to his spokesman, from media reports, not from Hunter Biden directly. Uh, might have said something saying, you know, this could cause appearance problems. This might also complicate the efforts of Joe Biden to urge Ukraine to crack down on corruption. Do you have a sense of what Hunter Biden's job actually entailed? Or as a board member, what was it just kind of showing up for meetings a few times a year or advising the company on their business moves? When this position for Hunter Biden was announced, the company put out a press release saying he would oversee their legal unit. Well, Hunter Biden and his representatives have said that actually didn't happen, that he was on the board to uh, use his expertise on transparency, quote unquote, governance, other things like that. 
I talked to another board member, the former president of Poland, who told me Hunter Biden's expertise was not in gas technology. It was about international politics, for example. It's not really clear exactly what he did. They had a couple of board meetings a year. Sometimes they were in a place such as Monaco. And we don't know what Hunter Biden was paid exactly. There have been various reports based on some records in an unrelated court case that have said some people have interpreted it as meaning up to $50,000 in some months that he mm. was paid. That's not 100% clear. I asked the um, lawyer for Hunter Biden in writing numerous times in July and then again for this story that ran a few days ago, how much did Hunter Biden make? Basically, the lawyer said that's a private matter. We're not going to tell you. What exactly did Hunter Biden do? I asked the lawyer as far as you know, helping the company in his job. What we know is that what the statement says and that he was supposed to help in transparency and governance. So we don't have specific examples of what he did, and they're not saying exactly how much he was paid. And then at what point does Burisma, this Ukrainian company, become mired in this controversy? Well, there is this overall effort in Ukraine where people say there's a lot of corruption all over the place. There are various investigations that have gone on. There were prosecutors who were looking at various things. And I want to be fair here because in the end, the company was not itself charged with wrongdoing, but clearly there were investigations that were going on. There were some freezing of accounts that were then unfrozen. The prosecutor general early on named Victor Shokin told us in July that he was interested in looking into the company and also wanted to ask Hunter Biden some questions. Now, a key part of the story, I mentioned it's a two-part story. Part one is why did Hunter Biden get this job? Part two is the allegation by President Trump and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, that Biden came over to Ukraine and basically stopped this prosecutor from an investigation into the company and his own son. So at this point, is there any evidence to support what it seems that President Trump and Rudy Giuliani are alleging, that there was something untoward either about Hunter Biden's role in this company or about Joe Biden's actions in doing foreign policy in Ukraine? It has not been proven. It's not been substantiated that Joe Biden got the prosecutor fired to avoid having his son uh, being investigated. When you think back to the moment when Hunter Biden is agreeing to take on this role in Ukraine, just a few weeks after his father had gone there on a foreign policy visit, and when he had these people around him who were warning him, maybe this isn't a great idea, this has an appearance of conflict of interest, I wonder if the thing that they were worried about was something that kind of looks like this current moment, that it wasn't just about, well, would you be doing something corrupt by joining the board of this Ukrainian company, but that it just gives off this appearance that would ultimately become a problem for both Hunter Biden and for his father? Well, there are people who look at conflict of interest and would say maybe it's inevitable. There'd be questions raised about this. If you go on the board of a company in Ukraine and your father is basically shepherding U.S. policy in the region, in that country, and also on the gas business, which is what Hunter Biden was in. So, you know, we also raise a lot of questions about Trump and his own businesses and then his children's businesses and so forth. So, you know, these all seem like very legitimate questions to ask of a lot of different uh, politicians, uh, Bidens and the Trumps as well. As for the matter of what Trump has raised, alleging that Joe Biden got the prosecutor fired essentially so that his son would not be investigated, that's something that has not been substantiated. 
Michael Cranish is an investigative reporter on the Post's politics desk. We went to the first church in Upper Tract, West Virginia, and just gave her whole service. And then she got to the end and she said, you know, okay, this is our closing hymn. The opening notes start and she walks right out the door, (laughs) still wearing her white robe. The congregation's still singing and she's gone. It's a mic drop. She's out of there. (laughs) They're very used to it. Nobody reacts. (laughs) Oh, And then she had a pretty lengthy drive to get to the next church, which is about 40 minutes away. Where to next? St. John. And when we got there, that service had, you know, they'd already done a sizable chunk of the service without her. And there's a volunteer who's up there reading from Psalms. And she's, you know, she still has her robe on. She just walks right up into the pulpit and she takes over and she does the reading from the Gospels. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able And when that service ended, she stuck around for a couple minutes, and then she says, okay, we have to go, we have to be on time, and gets in the car again and drives to a third service, which was at Calvary Church in Brandywine. And does it all over again. I was listening to a book in my car this week on my way to New Hope for a meeting. My name's Julie Zosmer. I'm a religion reporter. This story grew out of a broader conversation about mainline Protestantism, which is the church that was sort of the mainstream normal religion of Americans going back centuries. Most of the founding fathers were mainline Protestants. Almost all the presidents we've had have been mainline Protestants, with some recent exceptions. And nowadays, mainline Protestantism is in rapid decline And that was a conversation that I've been having with people I write about and with people who read my writing for many years. And I wanted to look at what you do when your church is shrinking. Do you close churches? Do you merge them? Do you try to form one big church out of smaller churches? Those questions were what led me to this story. And you found some people who had somewhat of an unconventional solution to the question of what do you do when when your faith group is getting smaller. So what was the solution? In some sense, it's not unconventional. It's a very historic, conventional solution. It's what they used to do in frontier days. They had a circuit preacher. The circuit preacher used to be on— A circuit preacher. A circuit preacher, a pastor on horseback who would ride from town to town. And when he showed up in your town on a Sunday— They'd do all the baptisms, all the marriages, because the pastor was there. And then he would ride his horse and go on to the next town, and you'd see him every few weeks or every few months. That concept did not entirely go away. There have always been circuit preachers, 
but mostly went away. And most of what we've known for decades and decades has been you have a local church with a full-time pastor, and that's the model. That model isn't working too well anymore. And in many places, they're bringing back the circuit preacher. One pastor, lots of churches, no more horses. So you found a modern-day circuit preacher. did. I found two. They're a married couple named Jason and Jess Felici. They met in seminary. They're both Lutheran pastors. And Jason and Jess have five churches that they're responsible for, which are the five Lutheran churches in Pendleton and Pocahontas counties, two counties in West Virginia. These counties are very, very rural. The population is shrinking. The population of mainline Protestants and specifically of Lutherans is shrinking as people become more secular. Also, people are leaving the counties. Full-time farming, which was the occupation of many people there, is not supporting people as well anymore. It's it's a hard place to live. It's a place that is very, very isolated. To get from Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is the nearest real city, you have to drive up a mountain. It's a very winding road up and up and up and up the mountain and then drive all the way back down again to get into the valley where they live. They're isolated by geography, but they're also isolated by technology and by policy. They live in the National Radio Quiet Zone, which The National Radio Quiet Zone? Yes. The National Radio Quiet Zone is a huge place in rural America, about 13,000 miles, where, by law, they have kept the radio waves quiet, basically, so that they can do scientific research. So in almost all of the counties that these two pastors are responsible for, there's no cell phone service. So for these two pastors, what is it like having to serve for five different places? I think one of the challenges is that there's sort of a rhythm built into church life for most pastors that you arrive and you chat with the people who are getting there and you set things up and you turn on the lights and you make sure the heat's running and then you have the service and then afterward you have time to shake hands and talk with people and hear what's going on in their lives and learn about any illnesses or crises or anything that you might need to know about. You know, after church, there's not a whole lot of time to to stand around and talk. We usually pack up and get in the car or truck, and then by about quarter of 10... That rhythm is really cut short for them. So they rely on volunteers who can show up and turn on the lights and get the pews set up because they can't do that because they're rushing from the previous service. And sometimes they're rushing out the door and they don't have time to shake hands and to talk to people. And so they really have to make an effort to do that when they can. So they plan potluck lunches as often as they can so that they can spend quality time with members on certain Sundays. They vary up the schedule sometimes so they get more time with certain churches. They ask people in the community to sort of be their eyes and ears and to call them and say, hey, this person's struggling. You should really talk to this person. They, you know, they have to be totally available in their own home because, you know, people can't reach them on their cell phone. So they need to tell people, call us at the parsonage anytime and really try to open those lines of communication. And so we've encouraged them to call us during the week or, you know, to get a hold of us sometime outside of church, which I know adds another layer of, of things that folks would... But it's hard to remember. And how do the people in these communities feel about the fact that these pastors have to juggle between them and four other churches every Sunday? I found that people were very resistant to talking about change. 
Um, they all know that this is not a sustainable model that's going to last forever. I mean, the pastors here have been doing this for seven years, and they don't have any immediate plans to change that. But I think they all know that it's not going to last this way forever. Um, but people really are so deeply attached to their church. These are churches that they grew up in, that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents grew up in. These churches themselves, these specific buildings and congregations, matter a lot to them. So the idea of, well, you know, you have five churches. Why don't you just merge them and have a few bigger churches? That's a really painful idea to people there, and they're not ready to do that yet. You know, the churches are in their own communities. And so where everything has closed, Mm -hmm. the only thing that remains in a lot of these communities is the church. Um, And so it becomes more than just the church, but becomes a gathering place for folks. And it, it seems like this is just one of many ways that churches are having to come up with a lot of creative problem solving to try to figure out how to serve the people who are still interested in being part of a church, even though mainline Protestantism is starting to lose popularity or churches are are struggling to maintain membership. Absolutely. This is not just a rural problem. This is not just a Lutheran problem. This is a very widespread problem. And if we look all over the country, we see churches that have closed or have shrunk and are using their buildings in creative ways, whether they're becoming affordable housing or co-working spaces or any number of other uses. We see churches that are trying to bring up those membership numbers again and are meeting in bars or in coffee shops or in the woods to try to bring in younger people who might return to the church. In some sense, you could tell a similar story about most faith traditions in America that have had to look at what do we do when our numbers are shrinking. Uh, Americans who identify with no faith at all are rapidly, rapidly growing. At this point, more than one in five Americans and even larger numbers of younger Americans say that they don't have any religion. So then what is the solution? What will it look like in the future for these churches that are dwindling in numbers, dealing with with this continued isolation, but still trying to find a way to survive? I think it depends where you are. Um, If you're in a more urban area that used to be able to support a full-time pastor at every church and now can't, your options might be close the church, merge the churches, go to a part-time pastor or a pastor with less education, or a circuit preacher who's going to let your church continue to be the congregation that it is, and also serve another congregation. And that might be a very appealing option, and clearly is, because we're seeing a rise in these circuit preachers in all sorts of places. In these very rural areas, I think it looks like a modified version of this. I think that it's a pastor who is making the rounds, going into the most remote places, trying to make sure that every believer does have a church home. Julie Zosmer writes about religion for The Post.
What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. This week was the conclusion of the criminal trial of Amber Geiger. Geiger is a white police officer who shot and killed her unarmed neighbor, a black man named Botham Jean. Geiger said that she thought she was entering her own apartment, one floor below his, and mistook him for a burglar. Uh, the jury having reached a verdict, uh, Ms. Geiger and your team, would you please stand? We, the jury, unanimously find the defendant, Amber Geiger, guilty of murder as charged in the indictment. Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And in the courtroom on Wednesday, something really surprising happened. The victim's brother, Brant Jean, got on the stand. And he spoke directly to Geiger. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Geiger and Brant Jean embraced at the front of the courtroom for a long time. Geiger was sobbing into his shoulder. And a lot of people saw this hug as this inspiring moment of forgiveness and unbelievable grace. But Jamar Tisby saw something else, too. Black forgiveness comes at great cost to Black people who have suffered wrongs, not only in this case of Botham Jean's murder, but for 400 years. In a society structured around white supremacy, there's the presumption of white innocence, which means society tends to exonerate white people for their wrongdoings. It also means that society assumes a purity of motive, regardless of the impact of a white person's actions. And it bears note that same expectation is not extended toward black people. Quite the opposite. There's the presumption of black guilt, whereas Amber Geiger only got 10 years of of a possible 99, and she'll be up for parole in five years. That kind of leniency in the criminal justice system in particular is often not extended to Black people. I think it's important to understand this in a Christian framework because Botham Jean, Brant Jean, and his parents are all outspoken about their Christian faith. There's a long tradition of Black Christians, because of their faith, extending forgiveness to white people who have committed grievous injustices. That is a noble act, and it is certainly part of the Christian tradition, but it should never be cheapened by people who think that is just what Black people do as as a matter of course, and that is what Black people ought to do, period. Christianity does not say be a doormat. 
Christianity does not say to wilt in the face of wrongdoing, but to stand up against injustice and to speak truth to power. And it's the same Christian faith that motivates someone like Brant Jean to forgive his brother's killer that also motivates someone like Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer and Ida B. Wells to work for justice. So it is very telling if people want to applaud this act of forgiveness as an expression of Christianity, but they don't also applaud uh, the protests and the marching and the writing that speaks out against injustice. Jamar Tisby is the author of The Color of Compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, a story about adulthood, turning 30, and the name Jessica. I don't know, like, what the mindset of a 30-year-old is supposed to be like, and I feel like I still have the mindset of an 18-year-old. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.